Hello and welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. And you are listening to the season finale. That's right. The season four finale of Wrestling at Random here on the free feed. It has brought us territories we've never watched before. It has brought us recent wrestling that was not eligible for the uh, for the randomizer before 2012 made its way into the mix here. And finally, we close out the season in some ways, the way we started or very early on in the first season of this podcast and several times throughout a WCW Clash of the Champions broadcast is what we'll be doing today. That's right. And as this is the season finale, a lot of new listeners drop in and this is where they pick up because it'll be the last episode in your free feed. So welcome to new listeners that are joining the podcast. This is how this this season works. And every season, basically, we take all the Internet's wrestling content. We take it all. We dump it into the randomizer. We fire it up every week. The randomizer will pick a show at random. It could be any territory could be any time period as long as it's at least 10 years old the randomizer will pick it up say you're going to watch this show and we do and we review it and and this season's theme has been randomizer busting at the seams we overloaded it with content so much new content so much there were so many places to pull from on the internet this year we loaded it all up there so many great shows so Good news if you're just joining the podcast. Everything in the back catalog, everything in season four, in season three, and season two, all of these seasons, evergreen content, it's brand new to you. It's So you can go through and listen to all these. We'll be referencing some other podcasts throughout the episodes that we've done throughout this show. Hopefully it excites you to go back and listen to those as well. And this Clash of the Champions, this is Clash of the Champions 14... Dixie Dynamite, and uh, this took place January 30th, 1991, while we do take all of the Internet's wrestling content, a lot of the Internet's wrestling content lives on the WWE Network or Peacock, and so if you, this is where we pulled this episode from, so if you are watching, looking for the Clash of the Champions on Peacock, that is Season 4, Episode 1, and Let's talk a little bit about 1991. We've talked about the Clash of the Champions in the history on, uh, on episodes past. Let's talk a little bit about 1991 and WCW. Uh, January 1991, Dusty Rhodes has left the World Wrestling Federation. He's become the new booker of WCW. Also in 1991, the name the National Wrestling Alliance will virtually disappear from the wrestling industry except... For the names of a few championships in Mexico and references to WCW in Japan. Dusty, Dusty Rhodes, in fact, changed the main event of this Clash of the Champions from Ric Flair and Flying Brian Pillman to be Ric Flair and Scott Steiner. Yeah, Brian Pillman will be on this show with a, a much less high profile opponent than the world heavyweight champion Ric Flair. The Clash drew a sellout crowd of 2,200 in Gainesville with tickets priced at $10 and $5. <laughs> a tiny building, the Georgia Mountains Center. It's an oddly shaped building. People are red hot. There's weird pictures. There's murals, portraits of wrestlers with blinking <laughs> stars around them. 
The entranceway is oddly shaped. There's a ramp. Uh, it has uh, it has a unique look. You can't take a, you can't take that away from the Georgia Mountain Center. This show was moved to the Georgia Mountain Center in Gainesville only ten days before the Clash of the Champions. Wow. So everyone was happy with the packed house that they got here. Where was it originally planned to be? In the CNN Center. They were going to do uh, a show there on across multiple floors in the building. What? And there was a, yeah, it, it, it just uh, didn't come together in time. Did I not guess. come together, correct. Wow, so that they, would have had a Mall of America first episode yes. of Nitro feel. What a different, granted, still in the same state, but what a different feel between the CNN Center and the Georgia Mountain Center. Uh, different in every conceivable way. This show drew a 3.9 rating and a 5.8 share, which makes it the second lowest rated of the 14 Clash of the Champions specials. The rating was a huge disappointment because with the lineup, it was expected this Clash would be among the higher rated ones. The quarter hour ratings tell the real story, however. The show opened at a 3.1, which is a solid open. It grew like a normal Clash would until it hit a 4.1 at 9 p.m. Over the next half an hour, the rating would fall to a 3.4, a drop unheard of in the history of clashes. There have been slight drops in the middle of shows before, although traditionally the show grows from start to finish. But nothing like this one dropped. The loss of 400,000 homes, nearly 1 million viewers, came during the Terry Taylor Ricky Morton match, Dusty's speech, and Ranger Ross Cubano period of the show. Draw your own conclusions, says Dave Meltzer, as to what got that many homes to switch channels and to turn off the television. But uh, things picked back up, but the momentum was gone as it grew to a 4.0 for the Paul E. Missy arm wrestling segment and a 4.8 for Flair versus Steiner which is actually the lowest rated main event in Clash history, but it still picked the rating up nearly a full point from the previous match. So that 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 tough stretch in the middle there really yeah. lost a ton of viewers. Yeah, that's what we'll get into it as far as those matches and those segments and, and maybe why they drop viewers. I, I also don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that even with that middle stretch, the main event would have done a better rating with Flying Brian as... He was hot at that point. The idea was that he was too small, which is most likely why he was taken out of that main event and Scott Steiner inserted into it. But I can remember even as a nine-year-old kid watching this, like I love Scott Steiner, one of my favorite wrestlers at that point. But there was a 0% chance even as a kid that you know you thought Scott Steiner was going to win that you just did not think he was going to win the title so it took it he was a tag team guy like yeah. to be to to put it in perspective 1991 he's he did not wrestle as a single very often so this no. was not this is not when you think Scott Steiner is a singles competitor this was not that time period no it felt more like a really good match you'd see on a regular tv show rather than a main event for the clash of the champions Scott and Rick were the hottest thing in the tag team division uh, one of the hottest things in the company, but it didn't translate to really believing he would win. As far as the show itself, we talked about it a little bit right before we uh, started recording. You and I, both separately in our Chicago area homes, did not know each other as kids. Uh, we watched this show live. I was a hardcore WCW fan at this point. 
the first WCW pay-per-view I was allowed to order after like a year of begging my parents uh, was the pay-per-view just prior to this, Starcade 90, about four or five weeks before. So I was even more excited for this show than I would have been beforehand. Um, and, and I told, <laughs> told you the story off air as well that the main event, I was allowed to watch the show live, but once the main event hit, that was past my bedtime as a kid. So I had to go to bed. My room was adjacent to the living room. I was able to convince my mom to let us leave the TV on so like it would record and the sound would be there and everything. So I listened to the show, the, the main event, as I was laying in bed, I could hear it. I'm straining to hear it. But as we'll talk about with the finish of that match, I could not tell what the finish was. I had a hard time falling asleep that night. I was not sure who won. I had to go back to I had to go to school the next day. Still didn't know who won. It wasn't until the following evening that I finally was able to watch the main event and find out who, in fact, was the world heavyweight champion. Based on Dusty Rhodes' performance on commentary, you might not have known who won the match just by listening, even if it didn't rush to get off the air. That's a very good point. It's Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes on commentary. Jim Ross is great. Dusty is even more dusty than ever before. You could tell this man had been dying to be Dusty Rhodes on television, and he had not had the opportunity to, and he was going to make the most of it here in his return. Yeah, he would actually do the Wrestle War pay-per-view that came after this. He would do the color commentary for that, but then... Uh, would step aside as as commentator and would not be doing the commentary, just be focused on the booking. Did we watch the Wrestle War pay per view for the Patreon feed? I feel like we did. Uh, the show that immediately follows this that had Vader against Stan Hansen had the Japanese women's tag match. No, we did not. We have we not watched not. that. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, someone uh, can choose it for us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would. I would like to see that. We'll we'll run through uh, a lot of the Wrestle War. Uh, run down here as this card progresses and if it moves you you can support us via patreon patreon.com slash wrestling at random there you can actually be the randomizer we call it the intentionalizer picks you can uh choose a tier that not only unlocks hundreds of episodes of bonus content but in addition you can choose a show for us to watch and we are we're on a stretch of like 10 or 15 shows that people have requested in a row right now. It's so much fun and we're watching some great stuff over there. So yeah, if you're not a subscriber right now, make sure you, uh, you can access all of those bonus content features over at patreon.com slash wrestling at random or right in your Apple podcast feed. If you're an Apple podcast subscriber, you just hit that subscribe button and it'll unlock all those episodes that are marked bonus in your feed. Um, so let's dig into this show. This was a free show that aired on TBS, of course, as the Clash of Champions do. Uh, the opening contest is a WCW World Tag Team Championship match. The challengers, the United States champion Lex Luger, wearing my favorite United States championship belt. Yes. Uh, I love this version of the U.S. title. It's a gorgeous belt. He's teaming with his partner, Sting, as he would often do, and they are taking on the tag team champions, the Team of Doom, Hacksaw, Butch Reed, and Ron Simmons. This is during their unmasked period. They also do not have Teddy Long with them, which is very sad. And from a, a major show standpoint, they are coming off of that unbelievably intense street fight with Barry Windham and Arn Anderson uh, at Starcade 90. Teddy Long, 
you mentioned he was not there. He was serving a 30-day suspension because he tested positive for a painkiller. Oh, wow. So, um, The old wow, by the way, is not for Teddy Long testing positive for something like whatever. I don't really care. It's that WCW was doing drug testing in early 1991. What the hell? <laughs> well, uh, it... Teddy Long is the one that gets popped, but Sid Vicious will still be on this show later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Selective testing. I do not think the testing was as legitimately random as the randomizer is. <laughs> no. Um, let's say here that uh, the, the, the team of Doom would actually split up about a... Uh, uh, a little bit after this match, uh, we'll, we'll very talk... shortly after it because they wrestled each other, I believe, in a cage match at Super Brawl One. Correct. So they uh, they would split up just weeks after this. Um, here we've got a hot crowd, like you mentioned at the top of the show, and they love Sting. They are into everything Sting is doing. Sting and Luger start out by working well as a team. Simmons and Luger. They tried to outpower each other, which is always fun. Running shoulder blocks into each other, which is great. It's so funny because Luger and Simmons both come from football backgrounds, but Ron Simmons is so much more explosive in these exchanges than Lex Luger. There is also during this uh, time period or during this part of the match, one of the worst running leapfrogs you will ever see by Lex Luger. It's like he's trying to do the Mr. Perfect running leapfrog. It's not the same level of athleticism here from Lex Luger. Also, his punches, even by Lex Luger standards, are hideous in this match. We had that that early Lex Luger match against Ric Flair, like in 86. From Florida? And, yeah, from Florida, where he was very raw. Some things were good. Some things were weren't. His punches were terrible. Here, for some reason, in this match in 1991, he looks worse than he did in 1986. This is not a great outing for Lex Luger. Simmons gets a heat on Luger with a hot shot. Butch Reed hits a top rope shoulder block, and it's so effective that it knocks Luger across the ring but into his own corner where he's able to tag Sting. Love this spot. It's totally believable, too. That big of a man, Butch Reed, coming off the top rope of the shoulder block, that is going to send him into the corner. And WCW has small rings. Sting runs wild, but outside the ring... Dangerous Dan Spivey jumps Luger, and he's beating him down because they are wrestling for the U.S. title at the February Wrestle War pay-per-view. A shoulder tackle by Reed, but Sting moves, and he hits his partner, Simmons, who knocks down the referee. Sting charges in. He gets backdropped over the top rope. The referee on the outside of the ring saw Sting get backdropped over the top rope, Doom is disqualified. Sting and Luger win by DQ, but do not win the tag team championship. As much as I hate uh, over-the-top rope disqualification finishes, I actually liked the detail here of Sting when he gets thrown over the top rope. He desperately tries to hold on. He's holding on to the He didn't top want to rope. win that way, yeah. He, well, yeah, because he knew if he goes over the top rope, there goes their chance to win the championship if he touches the floor. So he tried. He tried very hard to hold on, and in the process absolutely racked his back on the apron that looked uncomfortable that looked uh like obviously not as bad but that reminded me of the Shawn michaels back bump on the casket against undertaker it was not pleasant but yes that led to the win but not the championships for the team of single lex luger we go to 1991 missy hyatt be still my heart 
as uh, she has the results of the WCW Sexy Wrestler Contest. He's single. He's sexy. He's the TV champion. It's the Z-Man. Tom Zink is your winner. I love how later on when we see the Z-Man, how you worded it is how Jim Ross says it. He does not say... The sexiest wrestler in WCW no. <laughs> award or the WCW sexiest wrestler award. He calls it the sexy wrestler award. Such a Jim Ross WCW is sexy wrestler. Is missing this uh, this stupid uh, this stupid idea. We do go to the ring for the WCW World Television Championship. The challenger, beautiful Bobby Eaton. He's billed as being from the dark side. Okay. Um. He's taking on the TV champion, who is the Z-Man. Now, I hear as Bobby Eaton comes out, these overdubbed chants of the crowd going, Bobby, Bobby. And I'm like, did they add that in the Peacock version, or did that actually happen on the broadcast? I looked it up, and it was on the original broadcast. Dave Meltzer, Wrestling Observer Newsletter, confirmed. I've, I could have confirmed it for you. I vividly remember this and thinking it was so weird as a kid. Like I told you off air, I randomly watched this show a million times as a kid. I have no idea why, particularly watching it back now. But I remember like Bobby Eaton gets introduced. They don't play his usual music. It's just silent. He walks five or ten steps, and then you hear three, two, one. And then everybody in the building starts chanting Bobby totally bizarre this felt like a botch of something you would see at like a wcw mgm studios or universal studios show not here in front of a regular crowd in the uh the georgia mountain center did dave say why this happened no but he said it's it it sounded like they had them record that they had the crowd they counted them down and had them chant bobby and recorded it to play back here and it's even weirder so weird uh he did note that Tom Zenk came out wearing the TV title, billed as television champion, although he had lost that title weeks earlier, um, exposing the business to everyone who was in Perry, Georgia, or a hardcore fan who was following the results. Uh, so he, he had long since lost his title, but it had not aired yet on television. This was a totally fine, solid pro wrestling match. Nothing really to call out, nothing wrong. Everything was just totally fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought the, like one of the main things here was that they were trying to transition Bobby Eaton from being a tag team wrestler to being a singles wrestler. And he had sort of made the vow that in 1991 he would win a championship. I remember at the time thinking he was going to beat the Z Man for the TV title here. That did not, in fact, happen. But yeah, I mean, it was cool Bobby Eaton doing Bobby Eaton stuff, great right hands. Dusty was completely, completely out of control on commentary in this match, talking about being dizzy Lizzy. Uh, just he was very distracting here. And I have a really high tolerance for Dusty. Sure, being we love Dusty commentary. being Dusty. Yeah, this like, was too much. More than most people, I can deal with it. You can deal with it. And I, I enjoy it. But this was just, again, he had had years of Dusty Rhodes on commentary bubbling up inside of him that he hadn't been able to do while he was in the WWF and he was getting it all out here. 
Eaton was in control. Z-Man blocked a hip toss, turned it into a backslide, and Z-Man wins out of nowhere with a backslide, which I do love as a finish yes. because you, you build up some credibility that a backslide could win every once in a while. Um, it was I a quick it. flash pin for the victory. I love it as a finish in theory. In practice here, it was awful because Bobby Eaton kicked out not at 2.9 but at 2.5 and they still had the three count, they go to the replay, they show it, and it looks even more egregious, but they're like, well, we don't have instant replays, so Bobby's out of luck. Alexandra York of the York Foundation is back. She's cutting a promo saying she will reveal the latest member of the York Foundation later in the show. I will not lie. I had a massive crush on Alexandra York as a child. Alexandra York, who would go on to be Marlena in the WWF, but the actual Alexandra York character, I was a big fan Terry of. Terry Reynolds. Yeah. Yes, she started as a makeup artist. She was a makeup artist in WCW, and they sort of plucked her out of that obscurity to lead this York Foundation, which is all based around she was going to create the perfect wrestlers based on proprietary computer programs that she had developed. Um, We'll, we'll get to it later. I have a lot of thoughts on the York Foundation. I will say this. If they're for profit, they should not be a foundation. It should be the York Corporation. That always bothered me. Tommy Rich and Alan Iron Eagle taking on the fabulous Freebirds, this incarnation being Michael, P.S. Hayes, and Jimmy Garvin. They are so ridiculous and outlandish here. Jimmy Garvin is a guy that I did not appreciate as a child. He's not great. You can make the argument he's not even good. But if you want to show someone, and Michael Hayes, obviously, it's an even more ridiculous degree, but if you want to show someone what like a an 80s, early 90s professional wrestler, particularly in the South, was like, Jimmy Garvin with this look, this horrible, disgusting, long, curly black hair, that beard, the hairy chest, him constantly going, yeah, 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 all the time. He is just on another planet ridiculous. The best thing by far he ever did, we talked about that uh, that segment, the butler for a day with David Von Erich. With Eric David Von Erich. That's class. over in the Patreon for sure. Uh, that That is an amazing segment. Uh, <laughs> here, what was amazing is it's always great to hear the Bad Street USA theme song. Love yes. me some Bad Street USA. Um, this was Alan Iron Eagle, a.k.a. Joe Gomez's last match in WCW until returning in 1996. He was he only was, 20 years old here, they said. Yep, and uh, he would be done <laughs> real fast and then didn't come back till 96. He continued to be a jobber all the way through 1999. Uh, he got worst. no better, by the way. He was 20 years old here in 1991. He, he just existed he disappeared for like four or five years. He came back, and he had not improved at all. The worst spot here was when Eagle forgot to sell Hayes' famous left-hand punch. Yes. Horrible. There's a lot of bad here, though. None of it is the Freebirds. You, you mentioned that lack of selling. The other issue here is that young referee Lee Scott was horrendous and had no idea how to carry out this sort of convoluted ref distraction sort of finish. Lee Scott had just recently transitioned from being a jobber. He was like six foot four and 102 pounds. I howled with laughter as a kid whenever he would be on my screen. He was one of the guys that 
when Cactus Jack was doing the it's either Cactus or Abdullah. I think it was Cactus when he was doing the take on different partners every week. It would be different jobbers, and then he beat the hell out of him. Then Abdullah would come out, and they'd both beat the hell out of the jobber, and then start fighting each other. The most famous, at least to my mind, of that was Lee Scott, and then he transitioned to being a ref, and he was no better of a referee. Eagles tagged Rich, but the ref didn't see it. The Freebirds hit a double DDT and win this match. Not good. I would 100, 100% believe watching this that Lee Scott legitimately like couldn't <laughs> follow the, the action. Like, he missed <laughs> the tag not because that was a story, but just because he was that inept of a referee. I love we have uh, afterwards, after the Freebirds get the win, Jimmy Garvin with that horrible voice gets in front of the camera. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm coming home, baby. He's just so absurd. The absurdity continued as we rolled into Tony Schiavone with Paul E. Dangerously. This is great. They are having a promo when they're interrupted uh, by Dusty Rhodes. He's got things to say. Him and JR chiming in. Uh, Paul E. is announced as the intergender arm wrestling champion of the world. And Paul E. and Dusty were just trying to outrageous each other so this was a uh, uh, fun back and forth including paul e dangerously doing a parody of martin luther king jr's i have a dream speech but equating to him winning the battle of the sexes arm wrestling match against missy hyatt it was like you said outrageous and absurd and everything that was paul uh paul e. dangerously paul Heyman in 1991 back to the ring jumping joey mags <laughs> Versus. That's an entrance. The biggest shock of this entire show is that Jobber Plus, but mostly Jobber, Jumpin' Joey Mags gets an entrance, a ring entrance here at the Clash of the Champions. It's not as good of an, as an entrance as his opponent, though. Hell yeah, it's Sid Vicious versus a geek. I'm so excited. Vicious stands on the stage as it rotates him around, getting a full 360 view. This is awesome they've got a spotlight just on him otherwise this area of the stage is dark it rotates around we see him he goes nuts as he walks to the ring he gets in the ring and then you look at him and you look at jumping joey mags who's the answer to what if barry horowitz and paul uh, and tom zink were able to have a child together um it's just a shocking stark difference you'll describe the squash you'll describe the actual action in this match but jim ross and to his credit Dusty Rhodes are incredible putting over Sid Vicious as the most dangerous wrestler in the world, making everyone think right here that 1991 is going to be the year that Sid Vicious, who was a member of the Horsemen at this point, is going to take over the professional wrestling world. He kills Mags with a clothesline to the back of the head, then hits his awesome powerbomb where he like he just he drops down to one knee as he's doing the powerbomb. He holds him like off pin. to the side, like rather than have like picking him up to where like you have your head between the guy's legs as you drop him. He instead has him over the shoulder. All impacts. Sid Vicious squashes like you talk about Mount Rushmore's. He's right there uh, with the Road Warriors, with the Samoan SWAT team as just I could watch a comp tape of five hours of Sid Vicious squashes and not get tired. No, I, 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 I feel myself going down a YouTube rabbit hole later to go watch more Sid Vicious squash matches. Yes. I could watch them all day. Tony Schiavone interviews Sid Vicious. 
Uh, he rants about how the power bomb will cause you to be stretchered out. 1991, Sid Vicious rules the world. Well, that was the entire story. The entire character of Sid Vicious was not only that he would kill people. He had hired, and Jim Ross said, Sid Vicious has hired his own personal team of EMTs to deal with the bodies that he leaves in his wake. And what he would always do, and what he did here in this match, is he'd kill the guy, the EMTs would come out, put the guy on the gurney, and then Sid would flip the gurney over with the guy on it and badmouth him and kill him a little bit more. Just a perfect character. And this is the presentation. This is how you do Sid Vicious, damn it. Yes, and this is probably one of his best promos. Like, Sid is a terrible promo, but this was incredibly effective. This was, like, great on the Sid Vicious scale. Yeah, he's very inconsistent on the promos. He, It's always yelling. It's always screaming. About seven out of ten times, it would be incomprehensible. It would be bad. Every once in a while, you'd get one like this where it's like, oh, my God, Sid knows how to be Sid. This was top-tier Sid promo. Ricky Morton, one half of the Rock and Roll Express, versus Terry Taylor, who's announced as the computerized man of the 1990s. Yeah, this felt like either this was a screw-up announcing is this at the start of the match, or... It was foreshadowing that they purposely had the announcers not pick up on. They had they do talk about as this match gets going that Pauly dangerously had been trying to stir up problems between these two guys who were friends. They had been teaming a little bit while Robert Gibson was out with a knee injury. Uh, but they decided, no, we don't have anything against each other. It's just Pauly trying to stir stuff up. Also lurking in the background storyline-wise at this point was that Alexandra York was scouting a bunch of different wrestlers. There'd be random matches on the weekend TV shows, and she'd come out with her little computer, which is more of like a word processor without a screen, uh, and take notes uh, on matches and then just leave. They wrestle for a while back and forth, mostly Morton with the advantage. Alexandra York then comes out. We get an inset promo where she announces that Terry Taylor is the newest member. The computer is infallible. She wrote a program just for him. This match went way longer than you think it would. Here's where the ratings drop started to happen. They they called him the computerized man of the 90s before joining the York Foundation, which was super weird. And then uh, this was confirmed by Dave Meltzer that this was classic WCW production mistake and uh, they, they should not have introduced him as the, they wanted that to be a surprise with the promo. And uh, Morton misses a dropkick. He hits the ropes when he missed that dropkick. Taylor hooks him up, gets the pin to win the match. So some thoughts on this first. That finish was hilarious because Taylor holds on to the ropes he falls down. Morton misses the drop kick, but in the process lands a beautiful senton inadvertently <laughs> on Terry Taylor. Somehow Taylor is not hurt. Morton is, and Taylor gets the cover, gets the win. We also, you mentioned the whole idea with, you know, they, they screwed up the beginning. Well, later on, Terry Taylor will become Terrence Taylor. Later on, Ricky Morton will join the York Foundation and become Richard Morton. So you've got that whole deal going on. I thought the match itself was good. It was too long, but I liked the idea of 
Harry Taylor trying to keep up appearances at the start of the match that he was a, you know, a goody two-shoes babyface, but you see him getting more and more frustrated and wanting to fully let loose. And then finally, when Alexandra York comes out, he, you know, from a kayfabe standpoint, he's like, okay, now I can be a heel. He clotheslines uh, Morton in the back and then works him over. It goes on too long after that point. The best thing about this match, though, is that here in January of 1991, Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes engage in what will be a sports analytics argument in modern times in the 2020s. They have that argument here on this show talking about how the computer can only judge the numbers. It can't tell you what the heart is in the man. Like, I feel like I've heard old NHL players on NHL Network Radio on SiriusXM use this exact argument in the last month. Yes. So weird. <laughs> There's baseball managers that do that as well in the past month. So, yeah, it's, it's some things so, are timeless. It's so weird. The other thing about this match that is timeless, though, both these men throw great punches here. There's a great they exchange do. of punches. I would love to see a nice six-minute match between these two guys. This fell twice that long, if not three times that long. We get a clip of Japanese women wrestling. They're coming to Wrestle War. That's the only information we have. We don't yes, know who they are, where they're coming from, what's going on. They just say Japanese women wrestling is coming to Wrestle War. Yes, yeah, so representatives from the JWP promotion um, this was completely out of another universe. The match was great. I vividly remember Dusty Rhodes losing his mind, just not understanding what he was seeing, but being very <laughs> impressed. Uh, Jim Ross as well. It was uh, Itsuki Yamazaki and Mami Kitamura against Miki Honda and Miss A, who would be Dynamite Kansai uh, under a different name. But how wild is it to see, and granted, it was only maybe 10 seconds of clips, but to see clips of Japanese women's wrestling from Corican Hall here in early 1991 WCW. It's why for all the weird things you can say about WCW, you just talked about them said that production error at the beginning of the prior match. It was so freaking cool to see stuff like this. And as a kid, it completely exploded your mind. Even if you only saw it for 10 seconds, it was, it just, it showed you that there was other wrestling in the world and they didn't hide from that, which was, the polar opposite of the WWF where they'd bring a guy that you had seen on WCW television the week before they bring him in, give him a different name and they'd act like the guy had never wrestled a match before in his life. No, it was like when great Muda came in, when big van Vader came in and you'd see these clips from these amazing Japanese shows. And you're like, what is this? Yeah. Like, Oh my, I want to see that show. And yeah. then we would eventually see it with, the uh, the Starcade at the Tokyo Dome show here later in uh, in the year, so which is just a couple of months after this March of 1991, promoted in the U.S. as the WCW New Japan Super Show. Uh, which, by the way, fun fact about that show: the match wasn't aired in the U.S. because they had broken up as a team, but Doom teamed on that show, even though they had broken up a few months earlier in WCW. We reviewed that show in its entirety over in the bonus feed. It's a very special show for both of us, so uh, definitely go check that out. Check that out if you haven't heard it. Uh, Bill Apter is in the back. He presents Sting with the 1990 Wrestler of the Year Award. I like how Bill Apter had learned from what happened at with Jerry uh, Lawler <laughs> at Re was it Wrestle Clash or whatever. No, that was that Super show? Clash. Yeah, Super, Super Clash, Clash Three. Super Clash Three, the AWA in Chicago, Illinois, where 
Bill Lafter is out ringside calling Jerry Lawler to come out and get his his award. And Jerry Lawler doesn't show up. And then later on in the show, they do the awards ceremony in the back. They just went straight to the back for this one. Ranger Ross versus El Cubano, who also wrestled as the Cuban assassin, Fidel Sierra. Cubano was David Sierra, who is wrestling here under a mask because... He's on TV in an upcoming angle as the babyface trainer of El Gigante. There you go. Yes, El Gigante, who we'll see later on in the show at ringside. It's, I mean, I remember as a kid thinking, like, why is this happening? It's nine years old. Like, why am I seeing on Clash of the Champions, Ranger Ross and El Cubano? Like, that seemed like something that would have been out of place even being on the Power Hour, much less Clash of the Champions. It's even more confounding now when you think about the roster that WCW had at that point. They had a ton of guys they could have put out there in a five-minute match on TV on the Clash of the Champions. And it wasn't like Ranger Ross was being built up for anything. He, they, he never did anything. He was just a guy. No, he was already scheduled for that when it was in the CNN Center. He was going to do something where he was going to like descend from a ceiling with okay. an American flag as part of like they remember the Gulf War had is just getting going, right? That's why he's on the show then. Yeah. So so he was already booked to do that. So while he's here, might as well have him wrestle. But so that's why this match happened. And have him like they pivoted out- to him wrestling, which he was not going to do oh, in the wow. original show. Well, maybe so. pivot instead of having him wrestle. Obviously, he's not going to repel from this low ceiling at the Georgia <laughs> yeah. Mountain Center. Like pivot to have him being out there with like the the people playing the anthem and the color guard who's out there holding the flags. Do something. You don't need six minutes of Ranger Ross at El Cubano. <laughs> no, you did not. Give me give me Brad Armstrong wrestling for eight minutes. Jesus, I know you this- like that. No, this was not good. (laughs) Uh, uh, Ross tries a sunset flip from the apron inside, cannot execute it properly. This ends in a roll-up type position to get the pin. Not good. This match did not need to happen. The ratings uh, also agreed uh, with a lot of people tuning out in droves here. I'm shocked that the only useful thing that Ranger Ross did was the combat kick, his version of the super kick, and he doesn't even do that to get the win here. Just a totally useless match. The Renegade Warriors, Chris and Mark Youngblood, taking on the four horsemen's Arn Anderson and Barry Windham. Yes, short hair Barry Windham, which is very strange to see. Again, coming off that awesome street fight at Star K90, the most shocking thing to me about this match is it got started was that this wasn't just a thrown-together match. They had done an angle the pre- the previous weekend on Saturday, building to this match with, the, with the, uh, the Horsemen not taking the Renegade Warriors seriously and getting a little bit of comeuppance leading into this match. So this actually had a build. The Renegade Warriors jump them at the bell. They're running wild. All Youngbloods for a while until Arn Anderson hits a spinebuster. Arn is incredible in the beginning of this match. It's the typical... The entire match. Arn Anderson's the star of this show. The entire show is Arn Anderson. I I would largely agree with that, but particularly at the beginning of this match, with the whole structure being the baby faces getting the advantage, the heels like for a split second getting the advantage, and the baby faces fighting them off. This happens two or three times. Arn gets knocked down. Something happens each time. 
and his eyes just bug out like he can't believe this is happening. Amazing just, facials. All, just all freaks all out time. more and more, but it's in this like, it's like somebody paused him at the moment of shock for 10 seconds as he slowly slinks back to the corner and tags Barry in. Usually, and I'm a huge Arn Anderson fan, but usually I feel like as a tag team, Barry would outshine Arn. Not here. Ar- this is an Arn Anderson tour de force. It was. It was all aspects of great things that Arn Anderson does, the subtle things Arn Anderson does. And yeah, he, he was the star. Of the sh- but I, I finished this match. I'm like, man, what a performance by Arn Anderson. A really understated performance that like yeah. you... The, the match ended, and you're just like, wow, Arn Anderson's awesome. And and that's exactly what we had here. Well, and it's also, he's awesome in a match with two guys that aren't very good. No, and no. Barry was fine, but this was not by 1991 Barry Windham standards, his best performance. Arn held this together to an incredible degree. And like you think of other guys, even other guys on this show that would have been in the ring with the renegade warriors like think how bad lex luger looked let's say for some reason lex luger was in the horseman at this point having this off of a night teaming with barry windham how bad would lex luger have looked in this match against the renegade warriors all four men are in windham hits a lariat then a superplex Arn anderson's legal man so he covers him windham holds the other young blood to keep him from breaking up the pin and the horsemen are your winners like i mentioned Arn anderson star of the show the Renegade Warriors were released in May of 1991. They ended up signing with Global in July of 1991. Yeah, and I definitely remember seeing them along with the likes of Jerry Lynn and, and the Lightning Kid and stuff like that for sure. We get to see Japanese footage of Stan Hansen. And oh God, it's Hansen versus Vader. We reviewed this and oh my God, are we going to see the eye? No, we didn't see the eye. Thank goodness. I was on the edge of my seat, terrified. Yeah, they're, I guess, on the same plan as New Japan World in terms of wanting to censor the, the actual, the worst part of the, well, the eye shot, the original, what knocked it out. But yeah, same thought I was having. It's it's Vader, it's Stan Hansen. They're in the Tokyo Dome. They're beating the hell out of each other. But we don't see that shot that busts Vader's orbital bone and causes his eyeball to pop out of his head legitimately for real life. I'm not lying. Uh, we don't see that, but we see enough of these two guys killing each other. Again, I remember as a kid seeing this, whatever, 30 seconds of footage. And if an alien had landed on the front lawn of our apartment building, I don't think it would have seemed as out of this world as what we saw here with Hanson and Vader compared to anything I had ever seen as a kid. Again, these were the things that planted the seeds for me to become obsessed with Japanese wrestling. And then Hanson comes out and cuts a promo where he basically says, wrestling here sucks. Japan is awesome. The fans get what wrestling is there. We're going to bring a little bit of that here and kill guy, uh, kill each other, and maybe you'll understand, maybe you won't. Yeah, if, if you're like, what the heck is Adam talking about? His eye popped out of his head. Go listen to the show we reviewed. It's in the bonus content. Uh, we reviewed Hanson versus Vader, and yeah, you'll get all the details there in in gory fashion. Uh, go we check that out. We are not exaggerating. Out. I know pro no. wrestling is prone to hyperbole. We get excited sometimes, and maybe are prone to a little bit of hyperbole. Every word I said about what happened is legit. So, yeah, Stan Hansen in this promo, he says, here they want pretty guys. Over there in Japan, they want real men. And he'll do what he damn well wants. 
I love Stan Hansen. He's so great. The only he's mis- gross ever- and 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 mean, and it's awesome. His his tobacco is falling out of his mouth, and it's getting all over Tony Schiavone as he's cutting this promo. The only miss from Stan Hansen uh, in this promo was not finding a way to tie in sexy wrestler of the year Tom Zink into <laughs> what makes everything about wrestling in Japan better than wrestling in the U.S. Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker in the ring to take on Flying Brian Pillman. Pillman's in control most of the match. He hits a dive off the top onto Parker on the ramp. Which Dusty is so impressed by, but apparently it was not impressive enough for him to be in the world title match here. Pillman hits a crossbody off the top, gets the pin in a quick match. I have to give credit to Brian Pillman here. He he put in a really good performance. And again, just to recap and to reiterate what you said earlier, he was supposed to wrestle Ric Flair for the world title in the main event of this show, the main event of Clash of the Champions. It would be a huge break for him, a break he had earned, a break he deserved. Instead, he is here in a total nothing match wrestling Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker a month before he's going to be a part of War Games. It's time for the arm wrestling match. We get Billboard Magazine Country DJ of the Year, Rhubarb Jones. Hell yeah, Rhubarb Jones. And I don't say that because I have any affinity for country music DJs, but Rhubarb Jones was the ring announcer at center stage for WCW Saturday Night. And as much as I love Gary Michael Capetta, I loved me some Rhubarb Jones at 5.05 on a Saturday evening. He's the guest ring announcer here. Paul E. Dangerously comes out first. And then... Good God, Missy Hyatt, again, 1991, Missy Hyatt, be still my heart. She comes out next, and everyone can tell where this is going. There's no mystery whatsoever. Missy's got a big jacket on, and uh, there's no mystery of where this is headed. Um, You've got Paulie Dangerously not paying attention. He's ready to arm wrestle. He's cocky about her, But he's got his head down, and she keeps leaning in. like She's like channeling Jay White here. She keeps leaning in, and she's about to do it. And then she's like, no, I've got to adjust my my sleeves. And so she leans back. Uh, uh, Paul gets more and more frustrated, puts his head down. She comes back to the table, and to your point of knowing exactly what's going to happen, she starts slowly unbuttoning the jackets, and we know where this is going. Yes, Polly is distracted by her cleavage, which is completely reasonable. The most and... relatable thing that's happened in professional <laughs> wrestling history. Yes. Missy quickly slams his arm down, wins the match with no problem. JR immediately calls for a replay, which made me laugh <laughs> on yes. the couch. Uh, A-plus segment. Yeah. This was, yeah, this was so ridiculous. But everybody, like Missy Hyatt was a perfect Missy Hyatt. Polly was a perfect Polly, including like he channeled Arn Anderson from a few matches before <laughs> having the completely shocked pause face. Like he was in a trance and then 10 seconds after it ended, he snapped out of it and didn't remember. He lo- It was like a flash knockout from seeing Missy take off her jacket. Yes. Missy was one of the first uh, crushes of a young boy uh, here. This is uh, uh yeah, this, many many a poster out of pro wrestling illustrateds and and other things on on my wall as a as a youth for missy hyatt so we'll always have an affinity uh for for missy hyatt we see 
Ric Flair out for drinks with Lawrence Taylor of the New York Giants. I love, uh, this, like, the, this is a cool-looking segment here. This is just a bunch of dudes, like, there's a bunch of dudes standing around watching the cool dudes sitting there drinking. Yes, yes, I love it. It's also crazy because a few years later, Lawrence Taylor would main event WrestleMania uh, against Bam Bam Bigelow, but here he's at a table with this cast of characters. I remember as a kid, this confused me because Ric Flair is the Four Horsemen. And he's got Barry Windham here at the table with him, but he's got Kevin Sullivan. He's got Michael Wall Street, the former Mike Rotunda, and Alexandra York is here. Is Alexandra York working on a football program? Is the York Foundation going to expand to the gridiron? Well, she was she was probably still Michael Wall Streeting or, or whatever his uh, uh, whatever his York Foundation name was. Yeah, he was like he, the founding member. Like they. Was, yep. He was the first guy that she took on. It was Michael Wall Street. Then it was Terrence Taylor. Then it was Richard Morton. And who was it? It was Buddy Landell that that we, they teased because we had, that was on that was that on the bonus feed or in the free feed where the biggest question coming out of that episode was what would Buddy Landell's York Foundation name have been? You go from Terry to Terrence, logical. You go from Ricky to Richard, logical. You go from Mike to Michael, logical. Where do you go from Buddy? What would Buddy Landell have done? Yeah, I think Budrick Landell. Budrick was where we landed on that. Yeah, that's <laughs> wrestling so, is the best. It's, it's the great, best. and uh, here we are. It's time for the main event: the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. We see the University of Michigan cheerleaders coming out. I think these were University of. Georgia Mountain Center cheer, cheerleaders who were given complimentary University of Michigan sweatshirts. That's just my, my guess. It's the challenger. He's one half of the United States Tag Team Champions, Scott Steiner, accompanied by his brother Rick, of course, taking on the champion, the nature boy Rick Flair. We're told we have a guest from New Japan Pro Wrestling, Hiro Matsuda, comes out. Which it's funny because he's introduced as a guest from New Japan Pro Wrestling, but we just saw him like a year and a half ago in WCW as the leader of Ric Flair and that sort of horseman, not horseman type of group. Um, so it's just funny to see him just so yeah. shortly thereafter being presented as this straight up representative of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You mentioned Ric Flair coming out. He comes out to a weird, not actually version of his music. And that's not dubbed on the WWE network. Cause I have clash of the champions, the entire run of clash of the champions, a bootleg set on DVD. I fired it up and watched that version here. He had that weird music. The other noteworthy thing about Ric Flair from a presentation standpoint, this is very shortly after Jim Hurd made him cut his hair. And he, when Jim Hurd wanted to change Ric Flair's name to Spartacus, Yes, this would lead to uh, Ric Flair in the WWF uh, here. So this in relatively is all... short order. Yep. Uh, so we're also told on commentary that the winner of this match will take on Tatsumi Fujinami at the Tokyo Dome in that show for that show that we described uh, the the New Japan WCW Super Show. I was so disappointed that it was Hiro Matsuda and not Tatsumi Fujinami. So we could go like two for two in recent shows of having a surprise random surprise running. appearances of Tatsumi Fujinami in a suit on shows that we would not expect him to be on. Again, hearkening back to that Super Clash 3 show from the AWA. 
Also in attendance, El Gigante is here. Okay. Flair refuses to shake the hand of El Gigante. The size difference between these two men, you cannot do it justice. It's It looked like you could stack three Ric Flairs on top of each other in a trench coat, and their head would still not reach the head of El Gigante. Just a massive, massive human that unfortunately had zero professional wrestling aptitude whatsoever. Flair poses, and Scott quickly humbles him with some posing of his own. Yes, always love that. Always love when a wrestler who's in good shape but not like bodybuilder shape is so arrogant that they believe they have a Lex Luger-type body, uh, and they're posing, and then they get shown up by a guy with a real body. Always hilarious. Power moves by Steiner. Picks up Flair for a side slam and almost flipped him completely around because he was so amped. He only nearly lost Flair on that slam. That may have been it. I almost think it was the opposite. I think he was going for the tilt-a-whirl slam that he would always do back then, recognized that he could not get him all the way over, and thankfully, even though he was only a couple years into the business, realized, I need to just side slam Ric Flair instead of breaking Ric Flair's neck on a one there are two-thirds of a tilt-a-world slam scott steiner uh with a good start clean breaks flair keeps bailing outside to break the momentum every time scott starts to get something going again this is a one fall tv time remaining so flair even more than usual it's a very smart strategy to battle to the floor break things up make it uh make it harder for for steiner to get the win early um yeah, it, it's it's also it's just fascinating here. They mentioned that Scott Steiner's only been in the business for three years. That just blew my mind. Like I knew it, but thinking like I know it now, but thinking back to watching Scott Steiner then in my head, I was not thinking this was a guy that was still in his formative years in wrestling. No, Jim Ross says Ric Flair was a rookie. He was rookie of the year in 1975, and Scott Steiner has been in the business for three years. This was a great quote from yes. Jr. Flair with an inverted atomic drop to break up a 10-punch in the corner, and he gets the heat on Scott Steiner. Flair tries to roll up Steiner with his feet on the ropes, but Rick Steiner's outside shoving Flair's feet off the ropes. We go to commercial. After commercial, Scott puts a figure four leg lock on Ric Flair. A rope break. Scott misses a clothesline. Flair with a crossbody, and both men... Were supposed to tumble over the top to the floor. Flair went over. Steiner had to throw himself over the top rope. <laughs> this was so bad. Flair did a great job in this. Flair got air. He got air. He also caught the upper body of Steiner. Flair cleared the top rope. And then to your point, Scott, like the world stops. Earth stops spinning on its axis as Steiner stands there. And I imagine it's trying to figure out, do I just fall back up against the top rope and then like roll out in between the top and middle, which we've seen this spot happen before. And that's what guys do. He instead decides after standing there for a good second and a half to just hurl himself (laughs) over the top rope as if he was in the Royal rumble and an invisible man was eliminating him. This was hilarious. And the only thing better than this was hearing Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes trying to explain this away. Maybe he was just a big fan of uh, Terry Powers from yes! the uh, <laughs> from that Japanese women's wrestling show that we watched over on the uh, bonus content. 
He may have been watching uh, Japanese women's professional wrestling from Cork and Hall <laughs> yes. and got so amped seeing Cork and Hall on the broadcast there that decided he would do a Dairy Powers tribute. You never know. Oh, this was something. Um, <laughs> so uh, we've got Flair working over the leg of Scott Steiner. Ten minutes of TV time remaining, we're told. I appreciate that. Even in a TV time remaining match, that here in WCW, we have Gary Michael Capetta telling us 10 minutes left, five minutes left, four minutes left. Nothing worse than when you're watching a show or even more when you're live at a show and there's a great match going on, a great match. And then out of nowhere, the bell just rings and we got no warning of, of time calls. Very much appreciated here. In the ring, Flair is working on the leg of Scott Steiner, puts the figure four on using the ropes for extra leverage. Flair puts it on a second time in the middle of the ring. Scott's able to escape by turning it over and reversing the hold. A neckbreaker by Scott Steiner, and Flair gets sent to the buckle, goes up and over, all the way down to the floor. That was an awkward neckbreaker you mentioned. He's going for a rude awakening style neckbreaker, but there's some twists and turns, literally and figuratively, to get there. Uh, again, Scott, very good at this point, but still green not particularly in tag matches like it's crazy when you think about how awesome he looked in that match in the tokyo dome a few months later uh against hase and sasaki match of the year of 1991 but here he was definitely exposed a bit as a singles wrestler in a world title match big steiner line on the floor flair does a flare flop on the mats outside rick throws flair back in and we get the call that there's five minutes remaining i did like that jim ross here was a little offended about Rick Steiner throwing Ric Flair back into the ring. We had a window into what Jim Ross had become as far as referee incompetence. Steiner with a near fall on a small package. And Dusty says his leg is, quote, as numb as a cucumber. <laughs> I wrote that down, too. I have so many questions. What I does that mean? Well, what does it mean? More so... I want to know what sentient cucumber Dusty Rhodes spoke to to get this information that a cucumber not only can go numb, but that its resting state is numbness. This is, again, like... What a weird quote. It's so weird. Like, how does that even enter into his brain? Even a Dusty Rhodes brain. That may be... The most unhinged thing we've heard Dusty Rhodes say, and we watched all of Starcade 95. Steiner clotheslines Flair over the top to the outside. Back inside, JR is getting across the urgency from so Scott good. Steiner while Flair is working the clock. Steiner hits a double underhook sit out powerbomb. A tiger bomb, Joey Siles. Tiger driver. <laughs> Flair rolls outside again. Like earlier in the match, when there's momentum, he bails. He stalls for time. We get the time check. One minute remains. Rick throws Flair back inside. Not like Scott Steiner throwing himself over the top rope, but no, no Rick Steiner throwing Rick Flair back in. Steiner line by Scott. Ten punches in the corner by Scott. This with is not like, good clock management. No, with like 20 seconds left. And Jim Ross and Dusty Rhodes are great here, and it works because Scott Steiner's young, inexperienced. He's inexperienced. He's this never been in a world title match. He's never been in this situation. He's tentative a lot of times. He'll hit a move, and then he'll wait for Ric Flair to get up. If Flair goes out to the floor, he doesn't go after him. Or here, to your point, we're at 20, maybe 30 seconds left in the match. 
And instead of going for a pin, hitting a move, going for the Frankensteiner, which he never even attempts in this match, he's doing the 10 punches in the corner just because he's so hyped up by the crowd. Flair up and over, goes to the top, but Scott hits him coming off the top rope. He hits a belly-to-belly suplex, and he goes for the pin, gets a two count as the bell rings. The time limit has expired. He uh, he was a half a count away, they say, and Flair was saved by the bell. Time limit draw, still your champion, Ric Flair. They wrestled for 24 minutes and 25 seconds, and that was too long for Scott Steiner at this point in his career. There needed to be less TV time remaining for Scott Steiner to have the match they were looking to have here. The finish also was a little screwy in that the idea was that Steiner would hit the belly-to-belly and legitimately the bell would ring when it was at two and a half, you know, uh, when it was almost a three count. Instead, he hits the belly-to-belly. Gary Michael Capetta is counting five, four, three, two, one, and that countdown basically ends right as Scott is going for the pin it's an awkward spot for the announcers where they have to sell like this was saved by the bell, but it really, it really wasn't. It was also painfully obvious here that like this was the match was fine. Yeah. It wasn't bad. It was mm. interesting. It was a very interesting watch, but you wonder if Dusty Rhodes, like how much self-awareness or like anybody's of that level, like with, if their ego would allow themselves to think in real time as they're the booker and they're watching and calling this match. Like if he's thinking, Oh, I made the wrong call. I should have went with Brian Pillman. They are so rushed because TV time was out that they basically just say, we'll see you at Wrestle War, and the show goes off the air. Well, that ex- that, that is, again, explaining what I said earlier as a kid, not having to go to bed, not being able to watch this match, hearing it faintly on TV in the other room. The way this ends where you don't really understand what happens from an audio standpoint, and then they just go. Like, usually on these WCW shows from this time period. They recap everything you saw. <laughs> yes, Dusty and, and Jim Ross or whoever the commentary duo would be after the match would end, you'd have two or three minutes of them recapping the show. Here, they go to them at the at the broadcast position right next to the ring, and it's like four seconds. And they're like, we got to go. We'll see you Saturday. The week after the Clash of the Champions. Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, reports that the advance for Russell War in Phoenix is currently around 1,500 tickets in a 16,000-seat building. Why did they run Phoenix? Why Phoenix? It was not... They had no no groundswell of support in Phoenix. And if you know that, why are you running a 16,000-seat building? And even better, he mentions... WWF is in town the night before in one of those strange coincidences that always seems to happen. (laughs) Yes, that probably is a big part of why they didn't draw, but still, there's no way they're going to fill a 16,000-seat building. But yes, WWF would often book a house show the night before the pay-per-view in the same building to either depress attendance, depress fan reaction, or both. Favorite thing on this show for you? I mean, you kind of said it, Arn Anderson. As far as yes. the performance in the ring, it's Arn Anderson. Um, aesthetically, I loved this weird building. It was the oddest-looking show from a visual standpoint, just the presentation of the ring, the stage, everything. The crowd was great, particularly that this show was moved there on, on 10, uh, 10 days' notice. But I, I honestly think my favorite thing on the show, because it was indicative of – Part of why I like WCW during this time period, and it also was such a played such a huge part, like in the rest of my life, was seeing these short clips, whether it be from the women's wrestling at Corican Hall or Vader versus Stan Hansen in the Tokyo Dome, 
the idea of these little glimpses, these little windows into what Japanese professional wrestling was like, it just, it, it sparked something in me that's carried through to this day. Yeah, for me, it's Arn Anderson and, of course, a Sid Vicious squash yes. and good promo from Sid. So, uh, absolutely, those were the best things on the show for me. Uh, worst thing on the show? Well, I mean, the Ranger Ross-El Cubano match existing. Um, yes, that to me, it's, horrible. It's terrible. I mean, your explanation of what they're originally going to do, I guess they still want to have Ranger Ross on the show, but you could have him cut a promo. He could be there with Dusty when Dusty was doing his whole rah-rah uh, military uh, thing about the Gulf War. Um, the the Terry Taylor-Ricky Morton match was too fine, long. but it was too long for this show. Uh, and just they, like we said earlier, they had a roster that did not leave them in a situation where all they had at their disposal was 15 minutes of Terry Taylor and Ricky Morton followed by six minutes of El Cubano and Ranger Ross. No excuse for that. No, and I think the worst performance goes to Allen Iron Eagle as well. He was horrendous in that match with the Freebirds. Yeah, yeah just not terrible. good. Honorable mention to Lee Scott as a referee, one of the worst referees <laughs> sure. I've ever yes. seen here on this show on a major promotion. Just awful. So, and with that, we're calling it a podcast. We're calling it a season. We are done with season four of the podcast. However, we're not done reviewing classic randomly chosen pro wrestling. No, that's happening even during the season break over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash wrestling at random. We will continue to put out a bonus podcast every single week while the free feed will go on a brief hiatus. We will take a break between seasons. We're going to scrounge up more content. We're going to load up. We're going to feed the randomizer. We're going to, we're going to give it first. It's going to go on vacation. Randomizer needs to rest, needs to re regroup. And then, then it goes gonna, into Ryback mode, right? That, that's right. Then we'll feed it more and uh, it will come back with uh, content all the way up to 2013. The next time we fire up the randomizer. So definitely uh, uh, stay subscribed to make sure that you, uh, don't miss it when we come back. We also might drop a special surprise and some fun into the free feed. So make sure you keep that subscription during this hiatus. Stay stay subscribed via your podcatcher of choice. Yeah, you uh, may get a some audio, something maybe in the midpoint of the off season. So make sure you you stay subscribed. And just to reiterate what Jeremy just said, if you if you're new, you you aren't sure how these season breaks work. In the bonus feed at patreon.com slash wrestling at random, even during this time where there are no new episodes, the break between season four and season five on the free feed, we will have brand new episodes every week on the bonus feed. No break there. New stuff week in and week out. So make sure you are subscribed at all these locations, including our YouTube channel. That's also where you can watch the video version of these podcasts. So make sure you go to youtube.com, search for Wrestling at Random Podcast. Give us a subscription there. Helps us work the algorithm so other wrestling fans can find the show. And continue to tell your wrestling fan friends about the show. So continue. We, we rely on your, your word of mouth and the support of the show. Uh, interacting with us via social media at Wrestle at Random for both Instagram and Twitter. And all those links I described, the entire back catalog, everything is available at the website, wrestlingatrandom.com. And with that, we're calling it a season. What a season season four was. Holy cow, did we see some wild stuff, a lot of range. And uh, I cannot wait to see what the randomizer does in season five. Really looking forward to that. Adam, thank you for joining us. 
Yes. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Randomizer. Thank you to everyone who's been listening here on the free feed. Thank you to everyone who subscribes and supports the show over on the bonus feed. And we'll see you in a few whatever days, weeks, months, whatever that may be. And on the bonus feed, we'll see you really, really soon. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you again next time.